Please turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. We're going to continue our study of the book of Matthew, and uh, we've been working through it chapter by chapter. And um, Matthew chapter 24 and 25 uh, really deal with um, the end times, eschatology as it were in some ways, and uh, I will not be able to answer all the questions that you, this, these passages may raise for you, um, but we do have a, cl um, a class of teaching on the internet, on our website, uh, under special teachings on eschatology, and I'd like to encourage you if you have any questions to, you know, kind of, you could go back and go through that, and I think there's probably an entire hour lecture and, and teaching on Matthew 24. But uh, we are going to work through it as much as uh, we can here through this, uh, this time. So I just wanted to let you know that those are available. So we're going to be looking at uh, Matthew 24, verses uh, 1 through 14 that Bill read. <clears throat> Let's pray together. Father, we come to your word now and we pray that you would help us. You would give us grace. We pray that as Jesus taught these words, and they're clearly words that we are supposed to in this year, 2022, Jesus has spoken these words for his people for all time during this gospel age. And so bless us, we pray. We know that there's a message here for us, that we know that there is something that we ought to take away from this and we ought to apply to our lives. And so give us grace and help us, we pray. Especially as the days seem to be darkening around us, as the uh, the, the moral decay, the rise of violence, the um, brokenness of society uh, around us. Have we look at a nation that seems very different than it was 10 or 20 years ago, and we get sort of saddened as to what that might look like in the future and scared. We know that this text directly speaks to that. Give us grace, we pray. Give us grace that we would be a people that would be equipped for this hour and to honor you for the hour you have sovereignly placed us in. We pray this in your precious name. Amen. <clears throat> the Twin Towers in the New York, at the, it, that was in, the, in New York City was really a marvelous, marvelous building. Um, those buildings were 110 stories tall. Um, that, to me, just kind of blows my mind. You know, like, you know, if you've ever been in an elevator that went up, you know, 10 or 15 stories, that seems like a lot, 110 stories up. It just seems amazing. Um, each one of those buildings had over 10 million square feet of office space. And, uh, and they were just an architectural marvel, and they, they, they dominated the, uh, the skyline of New York City. Um, Jan and I actually have a picture of her and I and our children, and we were at the, on, the, on the island of uh, where the Statue of Liberty is, and we got a picture taken, just a family picture, and we didn't plan this or anything, but the family picture is right, uh, the Twin Towers are directly behind us, and that picture wasn't actually found on a camera roll until our friend who took it found it years later after the Twin Towers had, had, had gone and she, she sent us that picture. The thought at that moment when we were having that picture taken that the Twin Towers would crumble into dust 
uh, within a couple years uh, would have been unthinkable to us. It would have just simply been unthinkable. We'd have thought somebody was kidding. But even now to this day, to watch that video uh, is still shocking. Imagine, though, if you were walking around Washington, D.C., and you could see the Capitol building, and then you could see the White House, and there's the mall, the Washington Monument there, and all of the other great buildings. And imagine if Jesus were to say to you, uh, there's going to come a day when not one brick will be standing on top of another one. This is going to be completely leveled. Like the Twin Towers, it's going to be completely leveled. And imagine if that actually happened. Imagine the shock of that to us as a nation, that, that that place that in many ways encapsulates who we are was just absolutely leveled and such. Well, that's kind of the shock that we're going to see in this passage today that the disciples felt. And that leads to what's called the Olivet Discourse. Um, this passage is, is entitled the Olivet Discourse. That means that this is a discourse, a teaching that Jesus gave while he was on the Mount of Olives about the destruction of Jerusalem and other things. But more than anything, this passage, I really feel, is a pastoral message to Christ's people throughout all of the generations that will make up what's called the gospel era, okay? This passage that we're going to look at, specifically verses 4 through 14, this passage is going to encompass the entire gospel era, it's going to begin with uh, false Christ and such. But if you look at verse 14, it's going to end with the end coming. Then the end will come. So this, is, this passage is sort of a, a, a summary and a, and a statement of preparing us for what life is going to be like from Christ's first coming to his second coming. And, uh, and that's why it's a very important passage. Now, so let's study it. We're going to go down through... Um, Sentence by sentence, line by line. Uh, let's begin. So if you have your Bibles open with you, look at verse, 20, uh, verse 1, Matthew 24. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to show him the buildings of the temple. And he said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, the Temple Mount, which is still here today, if you see it, if you're in Jerusalem, it's a Temple Mount. It's high and lifted up. You've you got to climb up there to get up there. And the Temple Mount is, in Jesus' day, was an absolutely wonderful sight. It had the temple there in the middle, and then there was the king's palaces that was all along, and there were buildings all over the place. And it was actually considered one of the great wonders of the world to see that. And so Jesus is actually leaving the temple area, and the disciples sort of stop him. He's a Galilean carpenter, he's, and so being in the urban area and seeing the big thing, you know, these big buildings or something, they turned him around and they said, look at this. Isn't this amazing? Look at all of these buildings. And then Jesus tells them, I say to you, I say to you, assuredly I say to you, amen, amen, I say this to you, listen very carefully. There is going to come a time when not one stone will be laid upon another. There's going to come a time when this whole thing is going to be destroyed. Now, they're in shock. That shocks them. And so look at what happens in verse 3. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, and the Mount of Olives is on the other side. So you have the, the temple area is up here, 
and then you go down to the temple in Jerusalem proper, and then the Mount of Olives sort of climbs over here, so you have a wonderful view of it. Jesus is now in the Mount of Olives, and he's sitting there and, uh, with his disciples, and notice what it says. The disciples came to him privately. So Jesus was with the multitude. He was leaving the temple with lots of followers, and he said, this is going to be wiped out. The disciples are in shock, so they get Jesus alone finally, and they ask him privately, and here they ask him two questions, okay? They think they're asking him one question, but they're actually asking him two questions. Look at uh, what it says in verse 3. Tell us, A, when will these things be? That's the when question. And B, what will be the sign of your coming of the end of the age? Now, the reason I say they think they're asking one question because they're saying this, when will this temple be destroyed and what is the sign of your coming and when will the end of the age be and your coming? They think that's one question because they believe that if the temple's destroyed, the end of the world's come. Like that'll be the end of the world. But this is actually a structure. That Matthew is giving us a structure for what we're going to get into with the Olivet Discourse, especially verses 15 and following, because Jesus is going to answer both of those questions, the events of 70 AD and then the events just preceding his second coming. But what he does, first of all, is he gives us this sort of summary of what his people should be. And that's why I'm saying this is pastoral. Jesus doesn't get into all the, the technicalities of eschatology right now and telling us the signs and this is this and that's what's going to go on. Jesus actually answers this question, first of all, with all of these pastoral warnings and concerns for his people because notice what he says in verse 4. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. Now, let's pause here for a second. That's the first thing that came out of his mouth. Be careful. Watch that you don't get deceived. Now, I want you to notice something before we go on in this passage. I want you, I'm going to give you a heads up on something. I want you to notice how many times the word many is used in this passage alone. I'll highlight them, but I want you to just sort of be ready for it. Because look at what he says in, first of all, that would seem, like we're asking you when these buildings are going to have, when your second coming is, and you're not, you're telling us something we didn't even ask you for. You're telling us, be careful that we're not deceived. Well, that's the first thing that's on Jesus' heart. He doesn't want his followers to be deceived as history play, begins to play itself out from his first coming to his second coming. So look at verse 5. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. Many deceivers are coming, and many people will be deceived, and don't you be one of them. Please, I beg you, don't be one of those people. I warn you, don't be deceived. Now, of course, here, the first uh, warning of deception are people who claim that they're the Christ, claim that they're the Christ, claim that they're the Messiah, claim that they're the one who, who, who is to come. And that was very, very uh, prevalent. And it has been prevalent throughout the history of the world. I remember in my lifetime, the, the, the key person who sort of embodied this in my lifetime was the Reverend Sun Young Moon. Uh, how many are familiar with that name, the Reverend Sun Young Moon? Oh, half of us, maybe a little less than half. Uh, the Reverend Moon was a Korean man 
who claimed that he was the coming of Christ, that Christ had come, that he is the Christ, and that his fault salvation was through him. And we knew that they were called the Moonies. We knew the Moonies as the people who were, at the, oftentimes they were in airports uh, trying to raise money for Sun Young Moon. And the other reason why many of the people who know Sun Young Moon here is because of the bizarre uh, marriages that they would perform. Uh, Reverend Moon would be in a, in a, in a stadium and in that stadium would come marching out file after file, rank after rank, a couple thousand, three thousand, four thousand of his followers, all men, all in black tuxedos. And they lined up in rows like this. And then on the other side of the stadium comes walking out the same number, 4,500, women dressed in, in brides' outfits, and they would just simply line up. Each woman would line up next to a man. Now, this was the first time that those men and women saw or met each other. They had no idea. It was just random in that sense, whoever lined up, whoever, you know, like, so, you know, you're standing there about to meet your wife, and she's walking up the aisle. You know, I'm back there. You know, I'm thinking, I'm counting, you know. I'm, I'm looking for the pretty ones. I'm doing, you know, weird stuff like that, but I'm hoping that this one's mine. But whoever stopped, boom then Reverend Moon would have a ceremony and you were married. That was your marriage ceremony. Reverend Moon deceived thousands upon thousands of people. I knew somebody who was a Moonie. I met him after he had left. And he has been psychologically damaged since that time. And now it's 40 years ago. It was an absolutely awful thing. And thousands upon thousands of people were deceived by Reverend Moon. And Jesus is warning of that here. Now look at verse 6. And then Jesus says this. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all of these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Once again, Jesus is preparing us that there's this time, this gospel age, this, this age between my two comings is going to be an age that's going to be known by wars and rumors of wars. And there's going to be a lot of things, but I don't want you to get caught up in that and to become concerned about that because that is not the end, okay? Verse 7, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, pandemics you could put there, and earthquakes in various places. All of these are the beginning of sorrow. This isn't the end. This is the beginning. And the word sorrow there would be much better translated birth pangs. It's the beginning of labor. That's the word that's being used here. The labor has just begun. The pain, the upheaval, and all that has just begun. We're early in labor. We haven't gone to the hospital yet. We, don't, we haven't called the OB yet. We're early in labor. And so he's saying wars and rumors of wars and pestilence and earthquakes in various places. This is just the beginning. This is the beginning. And, and don't, now, now notice again, Jesus' pastoral concern. He's such a wonderful shepherd. He's saying, don't be troubled, verse 6. These are just the beginnings. Be calm. The end has not yet come. What is Jesus doing? He's telling us, don't be end times paranoid. Some people are just end times paranoid. Every little thing makes people end times. And Jesus is saying, have proper perspective. Because when there are wars, and when there are earthquakes, and when there are pestilences, and when there, it's going to feel like the end times. And he says, but don't, don't, don't be end times paranoid. 
These are, don't be troubled yet. These have to play out. This is going to be a violent age. This is going to be a warring age. This is going to be an age known by earthquakes. It was amazing when Jan and I went to Israel and we toured how many of the ruins we tore. And there would be whole cities that were just flattened. And I'm like, what happened here? Earthquake. And then we go to another place. Cities flattened. What happened here? Earthquakes. There was some, I was like, I'm, I almost got nervous about sleeping in a hotel in that place because there were so many earthquakes. And Jesus is saying, over this era, during this time, you're going to see these things. And these are the beginnings. These are the beginnings. They're part of the labor, but they're just the beginnings of the labor. Okay? And then he goes on, verse 9. He says, and they will deliver you up to tribulation. The gospel era is going to be known as an era of tribulation for the Christian. You will be delivered up to tribulation. And in, 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 in that tribulation will, 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 will sometimes be intense more, more than others. And we've, we deal with this in the eschatology class. And then it will eventually end in a great tribulation and then the second coming of Christ. And we will get to that in weeks ahead. But notice here what he says. You will be delivered up to tribulation, they will deliver you up to tribulation, and they will kill you. I'm, I'm warning you, he said, you will be killed, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. He's warning us. He's preparing his people so that they do not be shocked that during the gospel age, they will be hated, they will be persecuted, and they will be killed. And this is what the Bible teaches. This is the normal teaching of the scriptures. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12, Paul writes this, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Persecution is part and parcel with what it means to be a Christian. That's what the Bible teaches. Tribulation, persecution, being hated, having your name maligned, all of these things is part and parcel of what it means to be a Christian. And Jesus is doing us a very wonderful favor here by preparing us and helping us to see this. Jesus said this in, in, in earlier in Matthew chapter 5. This isn't on the screen, so don't look for it, guys. I added this later. Remember when Jesus said in, in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile you, that means hate you, look down upon you, despise you, and persecute you, and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus is telling us, pastorally warning us, that in the gospel age, Christians' lot in life, our calling in life, is persecution. Now, Christians in America really, really struggle with this. And we are dreadfully unprepared for this in America. And the reason why we are uniquely unprepared for this kind of persecution and to see ourselves in this way is that Christianity for many years has been honored in this country. It's been honored. Christians have been respected in this country. And that has caused us as people to be uniquely unprepared 
People in Muslim countries, people in Hindu countries, people in Buddhist countries, people in countries that are dominated by the Roman Catholic Church who then become evangelical Christians and believe the Bible, they are prepared for persecution. They know they're a minority. They know people are going to hate them. They know their families are going to ruin. But Americans, we're not used to this. And so we are actually unprepared for what is beginning to happen to us today. Today, today Christians in America are increasingly being seen as the enemies. We are the enemies. We are the ones who are stopping progress. We are the ones who are stopping the secular agenda. We are the ones who are standing in the way. We are the ones who are bigots. We are the ones who hate people who have sexual ethics that are different than ours, and we hate them, we're told, uh, people are told, and we are against them, and we're going to try to stop that and take away their rights. We are here to trample their rights. We are on the wrong side of history. Christians are people who are to be made fun of. Christians who are people who are to be made ridiculed. People are Christians who are to be stopped. People are Christians who are to be put to shame. And we as Christians need to understand this and recognize what is happening here. And it is exactly what Jesus told us was going to happen. Notice what Jesus says here in verse 9. You will be delivered up to tribulation. They will kill you. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. You are going to be the hated minority people. That's who you are. And what Jesus is saying here is embrace this as your calling. Understand that this is your calling. Expect it. Don't be shocked by it anymore. And recognize, recognize that this in fact is a privilege. Jesus said, Rejoice when this happens, for so they treated the, the true prophets. Rejoice, because so the kingdom of God is yours. When they call you bigots, when they make fun of you, when they shame you, when they ridicule you as being on the false side of history, we need to say, well, this is my calling. This is, this, they hated Jesus, they're going to hate me. This is who I am. This is what I've agreed to. I expect this. This doesn't shock me. And in fact, this is a privilege. And so here's a funny thing, dear Christians. There was a time in the United States of America when Christians were honored by the culture. But now, we're being honored in a special way. In Acts chapter 5, verses 41 and 42, listen to how the disciples grasp this so clearly. The disciples are arrested and they're brought before the council. And it says this in verse 41. So they departed from the presence of the council and they were, I'm sorry, and they were beaten. The council then had them stripped and had them publicly lashed and beaten with the humiliation and pain that that would involve. And they gathered up their clothes and they're leaving. It says, so they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. These were men who Jesus prepared. They were prepared. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus the Christ. Notice, notice that verse. They didn't stop. They didn't hesitate. They didn't slow down. They were publicly whipped and humiliated and made to be shamed, and they didn't stop. They just kept going and going. It didn't discourage them. Why? Because Jesus had already prepared them. Be ready for persecution. And that's where you and I need to be, dear friends. 
That's where you and I need to be. They're going to start canceling Christians. Okay. I'm prepared to be canceled. They're going to start calling Christians bigots. Okay. I'm willing to be called a bigot. In fact, I consider it an honor to be called a bigot for the name of Jesus. They're, Christians are going to lose their jobs and, 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 and lose promotions. I'm prepared. It would be an honor. Christians are going to be jailed. I guess I'm going to jail. Christians are going to be executed. Then I'm simply going to be following the path of my Savior who died for me. And dear Christians, I'm, I'm not saying, oh, this is Todd. I'm, I'm real brave and I'm making all those statements. I'm saying this is what Christians need to embrace. We need to embrace this. Jesus said it's coming. But there's more. Look at verse 10. It says, and then many will be offended. Now, I don't like the New King James at this point's translation of the word. The word, it does mean offend. It's scandalizo, uh, where we get our word scandalized. They will be offended, but, there's, but a better translation in this context would be that many of them fall away. Many professing Christians, Jesus says, in the gospel age, especially during times of tribulation and great deceptions and things like that, are going to fall away. And this is a teaching that is clearly given us in Scripture, that there is going to come a time, especially as, the, as we get near to the end when Jesus comes, there is going to come a time of what's called the great apostasy, where people will deny the faith and fall away. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul is, uh, is, is dealing with uh, these issues with the Thessalonians, and he says this, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, very similar to what Jesus says in Matthew 24, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us as though the day of Christ had come. There are some deceivers out there lying and sending deception, Verse 3, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And then he talks about the man of sin, the Antichrist, which we will talk about uh, in a couple weeks, in, in next week. But notice here that this idea that there will be a falling away, that Christians will begin to fall away from the true faith, those professing to be Christians. And notice what more will happen. Look at verse 10. And will betray one another... False Christians are going to be betraying true Christians and will hate one another. False Christians are going to hate true Christians. And then verse 11, now notice this, verse 10, many will fall away. And then look at verse 11, many false prophets are then going to come and rise up and they are going to deceive many people. There's going to be many false prophets deceiving many people. These are false prophets within the church deceiving many people within the church. There's going to be deception. It's going to rise and rise and rise more and more and more deception from both without but also from within. 
In Acts chapter 20, when Paul was warning the elders in the Ephesian church, he said this, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Now look at verse 30. Also from among yourselves men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. There is going to be a satanic attack that is going to take place outwardly and inwardly, outwardly in the culture, inwardly, and he's going to attack on all fronts, and some of this attack is going to take place within the church with false teaching, with apostasy, with people turning away from the true God and from the word of God. Then verse 12, and because lawlessness will abound, the love of, and here we are again, many will grow cold. Lawlessness will abound. There will be a rise of lawlessness, sinfulness, wickedness will rise. Sin will become normalized. What used to be a shame becomes normal. And there's this darkening and this decadence, he's saying, that will take place, this rebelling against God that will take place, rebelling against the rule of God, rebelling against the law of God, rebelling against the holiness of God, rebelling against what was once evil is now good, what was once good is now evil, what was once sin is now normalized and, and, and encouraged and, and even honored. And Jesus says, because of this, because many will be deceived, many will be believing this, and there will be so much wickedness abounding that the love of many will grow cold. Their love for God will grow cold. Their love for each other, their love will grow cold. And so pastorally, Jesus is warning us, and then look at verse 13. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. He wants us to endure. He wants us to endure tribulation. He wants us to endure persecution. He wants us to endure hate of other people. He wants us to endure the nations hating us. He wants us to endure during the sick and weak and, and evil times that we live. He wants us to endure when false Christians, false prophets turn against us. He wants us to endure. It's the word hupomeno, which we, you, many of us are familiar with the word hupomane here, which is the noun. Hupomeno, this is the verb, and it means to hold the fort. It means to be the last person standing. It means the person who stays behind when all else flee and keeps fighting and fighting and fighting and refuses to lower the flag. It's the person who keeps standing like a stone wall, standing. Stonewall Jackson got the name Stonewall Jackson during the first battle of Manassas. And what was happening is, is, is Thomas Jackson, who was a, an orphan kid and he was a, he was a geeky, weird uh, physics teacher at v Virginia Military Institute. And, and he was just made fun of and he was kind of quirky and kind of weird dude. And then all of a sudden he's in a battlefield and he's a captain at that point. He's not the general. And he's a captain of an artillery. And Stonewall Jackson says in his memoirs that during the time of battle, when bullets are flying everywhere and people are dying, he came alive like he had never come before. And so he's in the midst of this withering attack and, and, and Confederates are, are, are fleeing behind him and Jackson stands there and he keeps all of his men in place and he continues to fight. And then somebody, uh, back, one of the generals back behind says, sees Jackson, he says, look at Jackson, turn around you guys, get back in the fight, look at Jackson, he's standing there like a stone wall. And that's Hupamane. That's when everybody else is fleeing, you're standing like a stone wall. 
And you're not going to be, when many are deceived, many are growing cold, you're not doing that. You're not going there with them. And then look at verse 14. It almost sounds like a paradox. It's almost like a paradoxical verse. Now think of it, before we read 14, I know you've already started, but before we read 14, think about what's gone on already before. Many will be deceived. Many false Christs will come. Persecution will come. Tribulation will come. You will be hated. You will be killed. There will be people from within. There will be, there will be false prophets within, deceiving many. The love of many will grow cold. Nevertheless, during this gospel age, verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. This gospel is going to go forth. In the midst of all of the deception, all the persecution, all of the hatred, all of the wars, all of the earthquakes, all the pandemics, all of the internal strife, all of the apostasy, there's going to be faithful men and women going into all of the nations, preaching the gospel, sending the gospel, taking the gospel forth all around the world. And then the end will come. So Jesus has just given us a brief history of the world from his first coming to his second coming. How do we apply this to ourselves? Jesus is warning us and preparing us for life in the gospel age, and we're in here. This is who we live. Now, all of these things have been going on for all of time. All of these things have been going on, sometimes at different intensity, but they've all been going on. All of these signs, they've been going on. Christians have been hated for a long time. But the era that we live in now, there is something unique that is happening, and many people are saying this at this point. Even secular people are saying this. Something unique is going on here now. And there's an intensification here now that puts us all on a little bit higher level of alert of some of these things that are taking place, especially in a secular age, as secularism takes charge. And that's what's happening in the area that we, the world that we live in now. Secularism is taking charge, especially of the former Christianized countries of the West, that secularism, Europe and, 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 and in the United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, secularism has now become the main religion and secularism is taking over. And secularism is saying that we people, we don't need God. We can make this on our own. And because of that, and we have this progressive uh, agenda and we know how the world is supposed to look and we know what it's supposed to be like and we will decide what sexual ethics are and we will decide these things and we will be the judge of all of these things and we don't need God. And when all, as all of that is taking place, there is this increasing hostility toward Christians. In fact, as I was sitting there thinking, I was trying to think of any nation that actually welcomed Christians right now. The Western nations don't. Europe, the United States, Australia, they don't welcome Christians. They're not happy Christians are in their midst. Certainly the Muslim countries are not happy Christians are in their midst. The Hindu countries are not happy that Christians are in their midst. Those countries under, the, under the, the still remaining auspices of the traditional Roman Catholicism, Latin America, they're not happy that Christians exist. The only nations that I could come up with right now that are happy that Christians exist are those nations where such revival has taken place that the majority of the people are actually Christian. And, that, and at this point in this world right now, that's sub-Saharan Africa. That's Zambia and Uganda and places like that. But in most places, Christians are hated. 
And this, they're, they're, they're hated and, and they're, 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 not, they're not appreciated at all. And in, and in these secular nations, haven't you noticed, and, and they're even noticing it themselves, that, that, that lawlessness is abounding, that wickedness is just growing. And for instance, strange sexual practices are now being completely normalized and accepted. And, 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 and people are, are starting to see this and, and, under, and, and, and they're losing touch with, with any kind of moorings that were before. Recently heard a conversation, and the conversation was, well, her, did she have a new boyfriend? Yes, she has a boyfriend. Well, when are they moving in together? I, I was hoping they'd be moving in together by now. As if somehow moving in together is some sort of bond or, or something like that. But it was totally acceptable. There's no question whatsoever that that was what to be done. And so we see this lawlessness that is growing in our land, things that are acceptable. It's amazing to me the acceptability, for instance, of the F word. It's absolutely shocking, the acceptability of that word. And that there are human beings, and I've listened to them, I've heard them, who literally can't say a sentence or a group of sentences in a paragraph without using that word in every single sentence. And I'm sitting there thinking, why? Like, why are you using that word? And, and somehow the F word makes you feel more authentic and more edgy and, and more cool and, and, and more you need to be taken seriously or, or more of a threat. And it's just been degraded. And you just think, boy, the language has been so degraded. And so you have all of this normalization of all of this sin that is going on out there and all of this and, and the increasing violence that we're seeing and, 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 and the waywardness of children. How many uh, uh, recently listened to a podcast of the number of people who are leaving teaching positions in the public school system and their number one reason is the absolute unruliness of the children. They're not used to being effed off by a third grader and have no recourse. They're not used to the level of just, of just meanness and, and rebellion and lack of, of that. They're, they're, and they're, they're, they're quitting. They're just literally quitting and they're, and they're moving on. And again, this was not a Christian broadcast that I was listening to. And then, of course, we have this terrible deception that is taking place in our generation called progressive Christianity or woke Christianity. Who are these people? And they're nothing new. It, in, in the 1920s, it was called the social gospel and liberal Christianity, but it's nothing new. They think they're new, and you read their website, and you think they just invented the wheel. But there's nothing new to it. It's simply this. We want to retain God and God's love. We want to say some nice things about Jesus, but we don't want to be considered Bible-believing Christians. We don't want to be hated. We don't want to be excluded by the culture. We want to still have a seat at the table. We want them to love us and accept us and listen to us. We want to engage culture. So what we will do is we will embrace their sexual ethic. We will embrace what they believe, their worldview, and we'll try to Christianize it and bring it in. And that is a very satanic thing that's happening here. They see the enemy. Those people see the enemy as somebody who's willing to open a Bible, look at it, read it, and believe it. They don't like that. And so you see, dear friends, this is the kind of thing that's happening. But as the pastor of this church, I have to ask myself this question. What are the deceptions and the lies that we could possibly be embracing? 
You see, when you're deceived, you're deceived. You don't know you're deceived. You're just deceived. You don't know that. And Jesus starts off this passage by saying, see that you don't be deceived. Satan is going to go overboard during this gospel age to deceive people, to get them to believe lies, to get them to perish. Don't be one of them. What is the possibility that we will be deceived? Now, let me just list them because time is, is, is up, but let me just give you something to think about. I think the biggest way that we could be deceived, those of us who attend Crossroads Church, one of the areas that we could be deceived in is by embracing worldviews that are out there and bringing them in and not even be aware that we have them in ours. Here's one. Life is all about your personal happiness, your well-being, your psychological well-being, and your personal happiness. Life is about you and your personal happiness. That is the secular worldview. That's all they have left. That's it. But Christians embrace that because we hear it all the time. It's in our movies. It's the theme of our movies. It's the theme of our sitcoms. It's the theme of our music. It's the theme of the conversations that we have about. It's where everybody is at. What makes me happy? What's, what, what, what will make me happy? What will, what will make me feel fulfilled? What will make me? What will make me? What will help me? What will help me? What will do this for me? What will do this for me? And Christians tend to do that then. And we tend to do that and we tend to then come to the gospel and we tend to come to our relationship with God and we say we do what the world does. We say anything that will not make me happy, anything that will not fulfill me, anything that will not build, make, me, make me feel better about myself, I have to resist. I have to get it out of my life because this is the center of gravity. This is who I am. And dear friends, if they, you embrace that, to the limit that you embrace that, you cannot be a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's impossible. Because he would be a disciple of Jesus Christ needs to be willing to say, I'm ready to suffer persecution. I'm ready to be canceled. I'm ready to be hated. I'm ready to lose my job. I'm ready to lose my freedom. I'm ready to die. That cannot stand side by side with the prevalent worldview that just saturates every aspect of our culture today. It's about you. It's about you being happy. Here's another one. I'm in charge of my life. It is my body. I have the right to do with it whatever I want. That is an absolute lie. It is not your body. It is not your body. Dear Christian, your body is owned by God. And you don't have the right to do anything you want with it. You don't have the right to form your own morality. God is the one who makes the rules. You have been purchased by a, at a price. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul writes this. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? That is absolutely 180 degrees difference than the culture that you live in today. You are not your own. My body, my right. No, God's body, God's rights. Verse 20, and you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. Christians are being deceived. They're being deceived to believe that this is all about me. And then I'm just going to use God because I'm a Christian. I'm going to use God to further the agenda, which is me, my own personal happiness, my own personal body, my own personal life to do with what I want to do with it. And therefore, Christians are entering into marriage and they're entering into marriage saying, what's in this for me? 
and they're entering into childhood. They're, they're becoming parents, and they're saying, what is in this for me? Oh, now I'm happy. Now I'm proud. Now I got a kid. Oh, no, this kid's a problem. Oh, no, get rid of him. Get, send him away. Let this, somebody else raise him. Oh, no, this marriage is a problem. I'm going to divorce. And then before you know it, these Christians are abandoning their marriages. These so-called Christians are abandoning their children. Life goes hard, and they're turning on God, and they're selfish, and they're divorced, and they've abandoned their kids, and they've turned on God. And Satan is one. They've been deceived by embracing these worldviews that are out there. Life is to be fun and it is to be a form of entertainment. And so we're entertaining ourselves and entertaining ourselves and entertaining ourselves and entertaining ourselves. And we can't be without a smartphone. Oh, no, I'm out of service. Oh, no, I can't do this. We can't have an empty moment without scrolling down through or watching a movie or doing this or doing that. And nobody can get alone. And meditate upon God. And quiet. And pray to God. We're being carried along in deception. And then, of course, there's the normalization and desensitivity of sin. Let me ask you a question. Don't answer it. But think about it. If you were to look out your window and your neighbor's curtain was open and he was having sexual relations with his wife. Would you watch? Would you watch? And if you did watch, would you feel ashamed? Or would you go to work and you would say, hey, guess what, my neighbor, I watch, it's cool. For goodness sakes, would you make popcorn and sit down and watch? But we do that in front of Netflix. We do that in front of Netflix. Why? Because we've been desensitized to sin. We don't see it as God sees it. We see it as this decrepit secular world that is destroying everything sees it. Dear ones, there are powerful forces out there. We are in the middle of a battlefield and there are spiritual forces of principalities and powers and, 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 and demons and there is the gospel going forth and the power of the Holy Spirit and there is this huge battle that is going on and part of the enemy's strategy is to slowly wean you from God, slowly to mold you into the world's thinking, slowly to bring you into seculars and slowly to desensitize you and so that they, we will just be all all these self-centered beings like the world is living only for ourselves. Nobody thinking about evangelizing the world. Nobody care. Nobody even being involved in church because church gets it, 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 it gets in the way of my happiness. Oh, I'll go and get blessed, but then I won't commit myself to anything. No, that's what we are. And dear friends, we need to watch out and we need to determine ourselves. I am not going down. I will endure to the end. I am going to fight. Not me. I'm going to love God. I'm going to shut these media off. I'm going to love God. I'm not going to agree. I'm going to pray to God, give me grace. I'm going to be resensitized. I'm going to live for God. I am going to serve him. I am going to, to do whatever need, and come what may. I'm not going to deny my, my allegiance to him at all. Many will be deceived. Many will be lost. Many will perish but I'm not going to be one of them. 
I often say to myself with Spurgeon, whether even if the whole world disagrees with me, I am not walking away from the truth of God. I'll go down alone, but I will go down a faithful follower of Jesus. Dear ones, let us be those people. Let's pray together. Father, help us, we pray, to wake up and to hear the words of our Savior and to stop being deceived. Help us, we pray. Help us, we pray, Father, to recognize the battle raging around us, how subtle it is, how it lies, that this way, this way will give you happiness. This way will make you fulfilled. This way will answer all of your needs. And Father, we look out upon the world and we say, it's clearly not working for them. Father, help us, we pray. Help us to be faithful to your son, whether they hate us, say all kinds of evil against us. Help us, we pray, to stay faithful to your son. And I just pray that every dear person that's in here this day that you will give us grace, Father, to endure to the end. To endure to the end. To walk through the narrow gate. To endure to the end. Give us grace, we pray. In Jesus' name.